You're at the Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub where we enjoy conversations with people who are engaged in the world of coaching. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Coaching Inn. I'm Claire Pedrick and today it's my pleasure to be in the converse, in conversation with uh, Coach Geraldine Gallagher about her new book, Coaching Women, Changing the System and Not the Person. I can name all the people who are cheering. (laughs) Well, well, hopefully you can't name all of them. I'd like to think there were more. (laughs) Oh, there will be more, but I can think of two people immediately who will be listening to this episode and going, thank goodness. (laughs) So tell us a bit about your coaching journey. Well, I started in 1994. So I've been coaching for a long time. I was head of management development at what was then the Burton Group when we owned Harvey Nichols and Debenhams and practically all of the high street. So I was head of management development there. And I started to realize that although I was putting on all these marvelous courses for senior executives, nobody was turning up because there were, well, it's not no one was turning up. They were sending someone who was more available. So if you like the key directors, and it was just because the format of development in those days was three or four days out of, out of business. And it was just not it was just not um, fit for purpose, really. And so I um, started looking for people that could come in on a one-to-one basis and do small chunks with the, the directors across the business. And um, latterly, I was responsible for the top 300 senior executives. And so I thought, goodness, I can't find people to do this. This is very strange. And so I started to make up my own. Um, way of working with them one to one, and I've made up a, a little process which you know hasn't changed hugely um, since the very beginning. The spine of it, at any rate, which which is looking back, looking around, and looking forward. Mm. So I started doing that. I practiced on fifty poor, unsuspecting individuals, and then I set up the executive coaching consultancy in nineteen ninety four, and they were my first client. And uh, I, the Burton Group, became my first client. And, um, well, you know, since then, we've been going for 30 years next year, and we have 90 coaches and a core team of 27. Wow. Yeah, we've scaled a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Was that your dream? Was that my dream? No, not really. No, Mm. I think I'm, um, you know, I'm kind of take it days at a time day at a time you know and so I didn't I knew that there was a business opportunity in executive coaching I could tell the one-to-one market was was definitely the way to go and I was quite surprised that when I did examine the market more closely what I did discover was it was the kind of secret it was a guilty secret of a few top chief executives and Mm. it was almost like a paid friend Mm. and they were other largely men um coaching chief executives so it was kind of going out for dinner and having a chat about things which is quite right I think it's good that they had that but I realized that um, there was obviously an opportunity to to democratize coaching and so I was only in my early 30s at the time so I wasn't in the game of coaching chief executives at that stage Um, but I'd already cut my teeth on 50 directors and heads of function and I just thought well this is the level the, the level either newly appointed onto board or reporting into board that could do with one-to-one coaching. So I could see the opportunity to scale it and mm. make it shorter, much clearer contracting about the length of the engagement. 
And with this very clear focus on, we look back, we look around, which is about 360 feedback, and then we look forward about action planning. Mm. And um, and of course, it was the right product at the right time. So we were very successful right from the start, actually. It took off, so it was great. Wow. And when did you realise that this book was needed about coaching women? I had my light bulb moment in 2005. Um, and that was when I um, welcomed into the company um, someone who was a client, Emma, from Emma Spitz from JP Morgan. She was working there and on her second maternity leave, um, she became susceptible to being poached. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and that wasn't the intention, but we had lunch while she was on maternity leave. No one had contacted her from the organisation because in those days, and to some extent, some people still make that mistake that, you know, when you're on maternity leave, oops, don't contact them. So it, it allows people to become a bit more estranged. It was her second child. Uh, we talked about her joining us and she came and joined us. Um, and Emma arrived with the idea that we should really think about coaching women through the maternity transition. And um, it took me a wee while to see that as a distinct product. But then once I did, we kind of moved quickly to scale it. And mm. sure enough, it was it was a very good idea on Emma's part. And um, so we scaled it very quickly and we offered what was called maternity coaching. But we changed that relatively quickly when we realised that we were kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by suggesting that only women were parents. So we offer parental transition coaching. Ah. And then when we started to offer that and we scaled hugely on the back of that um, and because there was massive need there, this was well before Lord Davis did his commission report in 2011. But there was clearly there was this building realisation that where were all the women going and actually a lot of them were leaving when they became mothers even at that stage you know back in 2005 um there were still people women leaving um or certainly coming out of the corporate jobs they were in and so that got me looking at gender equity more generally mm -hmm. and then it really was like a light bulb switched on when I realized my goodness I've been coaching mainly men that I, I just kind of had gone along with the system and hadn't realized I was part of the system mm. I had never questioned it that I was mainly coaching men and then Emma came in with that idea about women and the more I coached women around that transition the more I realized that this is a systemic problem there's nothing wrong with these women but we do have a systemic problem mm. and uh, hence uh, since then really uh, it's been a sort of guiding light really for for me and for the company as well I think mm. what's happened is we've attracted, and that's a great thing if you're a purpose-driven organisation, you attract your tribe, and um, and that's what's made us uh, very successful because coaches that want to work in the sphere contact us. We get regularly contacted. And also it was a very obvious problem that, you know, still we haven't resolved, which is uh, there's still too few women uh, making decisions at the top of organisations. Yeah, I... Um was talking to someone the other day and she said I fear that I'm I'm coaching women to mask that's exactly what we were and that's exactly what prompted the book to be honest was that I recognized that 
um, there is a big difference between coaching women to understand the system and coaching women to navigate the system. But what um, I'm very wary of, and you know, I, I I definitely double down on that in the book, is not to do that. That in actual fact, we need to change the system and not fix women, mm. because fixing women is a bit like you know Maggie Thatcher having speech lessons to lower a register of her voice. I mean, that's just profoundly absurd. And so, you know, there's a lot around uh, women's style that I actually think is very fit for purpose for today's leadership. And so rather than uh, change the woman, why don't we change the system to allow women to flourish? Mm. So what's your dream for the book? What would you like My it to do? My dream for the book, I would like lots and lots of people to read it particularly, not particularly, including men. Mm. Um, and so I would really like um, people to recognise that um, this is a systemic problem. We need to do something about it. And of course, I'd like to see the, the system change. I, I actually would like to see. Um, and it's quite complex and nuanced. It's not straightforward. There isn't a silver bullet, unfortunately. Mm. So we have to move on many fronts. And my my book is really a call to action. And lots of the, the work that we do with leadership development with women is what we're trying to do is build momentum. Um, particularly among younger women, actually, because one of the concepts I talk about in the book, Claire, is the broken bridge, the idea that there's a broken bridge. And what what I describe is that when you arrive as a graduate trainee, a woman graduate trainee into an organisation, as I did many, many years ago when I joined the Ford Motor Company, and at the time, even though I was only the only female, um, at the time, I just assumed by virtue of the fact that I was working at Ford, I'd just done an MBA where I was one of the few women and I was accepted into Ford where I was being accepted. You know, I didn't feel any form of bias, if anything, that it was positive bias because everybody knew me because I stood out, obviously. And so I felt that the problem was solved. I didn't think there was a problem about gender equity back in my 20s because um agentic women, and this is one of the one things that I, I talk about in the book, is I describe the difference between um, a stereotypical um, description of men is that they tend to be more agentic, and agentic is more dominant, more decisive, um, take charge. Mm. And a stereotypical version of women is that they're more communal, and by communal, I mean take care. And so there's these two, this stereotype lives on in society mm. and it's, it's very pernicious when it comes to women in leadership because another stereotype, another cognitive shortcut, if you like, that we all make is that we tend to still think man, think, think manager, think man, because we associate management and leadership with agentic qualities. Mm. Now, because I went into the Ford Motor Company as a woman, with agentic qualities, of course, I fitted in. And, um, of course, I was welcomed in. And if you like, I stood out and people were delighted because I was effectively largely behaving quite like the guys. You know, I was quite dominant. I was quite decisive, etc. I was quite take charge. And um, so therefore, I didn't actually experience any roadblocks at the time. And um, I have to switch away from my own experience because I set up executive coaching and then I had a baby. So I didn't actually experience some of the roadblocks personally 
when you have a child, when you work in a, a large organisation. But of course, we've coached now, it must be about 15,000 women through the maternity transition. So I know all the roadblocks in the road that suddenly come flying at you when you're on this bridge that has looked so smooth, you know, so far. And all young, and all, we find that the majority of young women in their 20s still don't consider that this is much of an issue. And then, of course, what happens is they hit the chicane in the road. Around eighty mm. percent of women will have children, and they get the direct effect of the some of the unconscious bias. But actually, it actually spills out over onto all women, where there's an expectation of women not being as career focused, maybe more interested in their personal lives, etc. And it's called mummy tracking. And and many people will think, well, that can't be the case. Surely not today. But then I'm sure you've come across Pregnant Then Screwed, the the website by Jolie Brearley, which has really done a great job in calling this stuff out. There's still a tremendous amount of bias that women experience, albeit unconscious bias, and sometimes it's very conscious, um, going through the maternity transition. So then that's where the bridge is broken. Mm-hmm. And the tricky bit is on the other side of the bridge, the ones that have made it into leadership, the ones that maybe were like me in their 20s, Many of them have navigated this and have got to the other side and they're a little bit like, well, I did it, so why not, you know, why can't they? And, you know, not as not, not as supportive of changing the brig- bridge as you might think because mm-hmm. they, of course, are part of the system themselves and indeed um, feel they've done fine. And so I think that's very interesting that the psychology of the three different groups of uh, big mega groups of women isn't all aligned in terms of, the nature of the problem and the book tries to address that um, because I do think that one of the things that would be um, helpful in trying to resolve the problem is if women were aligned on the fact that it is a problem but funnily enough we're not aligned on that so that becomes quite problematic so I spend quite a bit of time so my you, you asked about my vision for the book is I want women on the bridge to unite and to collectively push for change and of course, um, you know, at the moment, because men are primarily um, in charge of the bridge, I really want, you know, there's lots of male allies and I'd like more male allies and young men coming through uh, who can uh, determine that the bridge needs changing as well. And then we're going to have a majority of people that do want to change up the system. Yeah. And then that will make it more um, conducive to having not just women, but other underrepresented groups being able to um, make decisions in society um, instead of having a very, very um, monoculture at the top, which, as we've seen, I mean, I think all of us have seen um, politically, we've seen the mistakes that were made sometimes in lockdown when they kept making, it's just the lack of having enough women that were speaking out in the room, that they were making some really fundamental mistakes around childcare around schools around whether you open the barbers versus the beauty shops I mean they were just made clearly from a perspective of not having enough diversity in the room Mm. and um that's the kind of I think that problem is writ large across uh, across society and indeed across corporate life if you don't have enough representation in the room you are going to make wrong you're going to make mistakes in a in a world that's so volatile and changing all the time you need to have multiple perspectives Mm. and the role of coaching 
Well, I think actually coaching is the um, the most useful tool in the tool in the tool bag, and the reason for that is because coaching is about asking people what works for them. So it's actually you know rather than being a diktat, coaching allows you to have um, a conversation one person at a time and help people see you know, that uh, things need to change. So I actually think coaching, um, especially as we do coaching in groups, we do group coaching, we do team coaching, we do um, one-to-one executive coaching, we do parental transition coaching in workshops as well as one-to-one, and we do big conference-style coaching. But all of it, always what we're emphasising is don't make massive generalisations. And actually you do need to, within all of that, you do need to attend to that individual because that individual's experience is going to result in having a different perception of what the issue is. So that's why coaching is actually the right solution mm. because it allows for individuality, but obviously we package it in a way so we can do it at scale, which is why we have so many coaches now is because we work internationally. And what's lovely is that our messaging, we've we've worked in every continent except Antarctica and we're still up for Antarctica. <laughs> Um, and the messaging is the same in all continents, you know, as long as you're going in with a coaching approach, then, you know, if you facilitate a discussion about what the barriers are, there are some changes. I mean, obviously, the child care situation for many of our clients out in Singapore is going to be very different than our clients here in the UK versus our clients uh, in uh, New York or in Sweden. So you have to take into account the, you know, it's like a Rubik's Cube. You have to keep changing it up. But nonetheless, the actual problems themselves are the same. And uh, and some of the solutions are, you know, the solutions are the same too. Mm. Mm. It's interesting as you're speaking, because there's all a lot of conversation, isn't there, in, in certainly on LinkedIn around neurodiversity. And it's exactly the same. Everybody's different. And the way to find out how to work with somebody is to ask them. Completely. And the thing about um, the thing about focusing on gender diversity, because people quite often say to me, "Well, Geraldine, assuring gender diversity does not assure cognitive diversity," and that's absolutely it's completely true. If you like, gender diversity is a fairly blunt instrument <laughs> for tackling cognitive diversity Mm. but it is one that we can at the moment we have some clear metrics that we can measure whereas it's very hard to measure the neurodivergence yeah Yeah. so in actual fact it's just a way of going and also if you can change the system and change your team dynamics your culture up enough to allow more women then clearly then you're the inclusive leadership style that requires will open the gates, the floodgates really to other forms of uh, diversity. So for example, people who are neurodivergent, you know, um, and underrepresented groups from a race and ethnicity point of view, disability. We need to take all of those things into account because there's huge talent pools out there. And yet we've got, at the moment, you know, many of our clients have got a problem trying to find talent. And we just want to say, oh, it's right there under your feet it's right there in your organization 
But what you have to do is you have to put a different set of glasses on to be able to see that talent because mm-hmm. the set of glasses that people are wearing at the moment often resorts and defaults to people like me. And that's where, unfortunately, we get the, uh, unfortunately, we do get the march of the you know middle-class white man where mm-hmm. it's just, you know, the, the, the movement happens at the top and underneath that that all slots into place. Um, and it's particularly under pressure of time that happens very, the default factor is to go for people that think like you, look like you, are like you, because let's face it, it's much easier. It is actually easier to run a team that are similar because you can get things done. But that means they, that's good for solving simple problems mm. quickly, but it doesn't work for sol- solving the kind of complexity of problem that we're dealing with nowadays. You absolutely need a diverse team to be able to, tackle those kind of issues so this coach who was saying i think i'm coaching people to mask Mm. what would you say to her well it's it's tricky you've got to you've got to um balance the being completely authentic, being authentic and being able to understand the versatility that one needs in your influencing style. So, for example, being authentic might be being really pissed off at something and then blowing up. <laughs> well, that's not going to be very successful. Mm. So I don't think I don't think being authentic is all about completely, um, you know, just being yourself in the moment and reacting to your moods. I mean, that's clearly not very effective influencing. So what you do need to get into is you do need to work with uh, women and men when we're talking about influencing style. So, for example, one of the simple models I talk about is push and pull and where your natural bias sits. Now, that, to my, to my, in my experience, cuts fairly evenly across the genders. You get mm. some men that are very pull. You get some women that are very push and vice versa. It's not actually gendered. The problem is, and not the problem, is the insight is that over and above that, sits another filter which is people have an expectation that women will ask more questions so therefore you as someone who's naturally agentic have to just bear in mind that is the expectation so to my mind that's not masking that's just clever influencing that Mm -hmm. you would bear in mind that women who have a very strong opinion tend to get described as being dogmatic being um bossy feisty all that crap you know that comes out <laughs> women do get that and but you know when you're talking about influence I work on an individual basis with everyone to help them shape and perfect their influencing style and so it might well be that in certain circumstances if you know that why would you know you would obviously think twice about going in as agentically and so therefore, um, I suppose that is playing the game a little bit. But equally, when I'm coaching men, it's the same. I'm coaching them to not just, you know, to shape your natural style and um, make sure that you're uh, able to influence. Because I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, when I have men that say to me, uh, Geraldine, um, I'm having this coaching, but I don't play politics. And so I don't want to, you know, as far as I'm concerned, people have to take me as I I come and I just say, oh, well, I can't coach you then because uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but you're a leader in the organisation. You're not playing politics, but you are influencing politically. And that is a core skill 
for a leader is you need to be able to influence across, above, round, about, etc. Different stakeholders, different times, etc. And so flexing your influencing style is a key component to success. So masking, um, in if that means um, being self-aware about what's effective and what isn't, fair enough. If it means to the point that you're actually really uh, not being your true self. So, for example, going to the extent of Maggie Thatcher and changing her voice. Mm. I think that's when you're really trying to adapt and fit in and be like the boys. It's when, and, you know, young women, actually, um, who are at the pub, et cetera, enjoy being with the lads, et cetera. What they experience when they become mothers is a huge identity shift there because suddenly that's not available to them. And they worry. They worry about, well, how can I relate? You know, because that was my, you know, I was one, I, I could be one. And so therefore you have to help them reshape and find something more inside in terms of belief and what they can do and how they can be effective, which isn't just about joining in. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, it is also about, I think, uh, helping women to also try and change the system. It's interesting the way you've reframed or you've, in, you've offered the invitation to reframe masking to, to you called it clever influencing. Yeah. And, that's such an empowering difference, isn't it? I think so, because um, I think, I mean, I do, I do know that, um, I do know, I have coached people that um, from underrepresented groups generally where covering becomes a really um, disempowering, where you're covering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, it might be your sexual orientation. Now, I think that can be very disempowering when yeah. you're not out, for example. And so that form of masking, you know, I think you have to work carefully with the individual mm. about when's right and what's right, et cetera. And so um, I think it can be very eroding. Yeah. Uh, to, to And that's the kind of masking I would work with someone to think about how they could unmask to be themselves. Yeah. But when it comes to um, covering, if masking means, you know, being nice when they feel shouty, <laughs> then... <laughs> then um, you know, I think we all have to sometimes think about being nice rather than shouty. Mm. <laughs> Talking about myself here, Claire, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So what else do you want coaches to, to be thinking about in the in relation to the way they work with people who are diverse? I think, and it's Interestingly, I'm wondering about another book, and um, that book I think might be about coaching difference. Yeah, yeah. Because what I, I noticed, I was away um, a couple of weeks ago in Switzerland with a whole group of my coaches. Nine of us, in fact, um, were away with a, a bank, and they had seventy female leaders there. And um, I met a girl on uh, the, the workshop who's who's been um, paralyzed facially since she was born. So she, you know, she can't move the muscles in her face. And I think sharing time, spending time with her over those few days and understanding the bias that she experiences kind of puts being a woman, <laughs> you know, into, um, it certainly shows you that, there's there can be things that are just so much harder to navigate and I think I, and I'm also um, coaching someone who's trans as well 
And so um, I think that might be an area I'm drawn to, which is to coach difference. And so I think going to people who really had to contend with, um, you know, it's the intersectionality, isn't it? It's mm. where, where it's doubling up and tripling up and talking to them about their techniques and what they do, I think could be really interesting for us to um, learn. And one of the things that, um, for example, I still don't know, the answer but um i certainly started introducing into my coaching if someone is different is introducing into my coaching proffering that i am a scottish cis female um that uh and to what extent is our difference helpful in the coaching dynamic and as i say in my book when i went back to people of color that i'd coached and i asked each of them how that would have how that would have played out if i'd asked that question at the beginning and um, what was uh, really a good learning for me was that each one of them, of course, said something entirely different. Of course they did. Wasted <laughs> <laughs> by my own petard. I go back to colour and think I'm going to get a theme. And of course, each one said something entirely different. And so you just have to go with, um, I think, a, a lot of chapter six, where I'm talking about coaching with an agenda, is my recognition as quite an experienced coach of bringing to that coaching chemistry session not just your coaching skills but a little bit more of who you actually who you are and what you stand for because it's only fair isn't it because it would be absurd to pretend that you're completely a tabula rasa that you've got no filter of course we all have a filter and if you're going to be a thinking partner to this person I think it's only fair that you proffer that up front and so I, I, that's been um, quite a new addition to my mm. coaching. And, 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 you know, I invite coaches to to think about that, to think about not going straight into coaching questions, but very much to say, look, these are some things I believe in. So I, I'm, and my two things are, I'm, you know, I'm very um, vocal in the world of gender diversity. I'm very interested in diversity as a whole. And I strongly believe in inclusive leadership. Yeah. Because we're human. Because we're human. Mm. I was talking to someone last week and they'd heard, um, uh, they'd been on a webinar with Kim Scott who wrote Radical Candor. Yeah. And she'd said, somewhere in your 20s, you were told you had to be professional. <laughs> yeah. And I talk a lot about humanity and professionalism. And one of the things that made me really realise is that, is that, that version of professional is the shell on the outside Absolutely. that doesn't that isn't confident enough to demonstrate the human on the inside and last week i was i was doing a coaching supervision with somebody and and we were laughing about the fact that when we started working together they were very professional on the outside and i said you're still very professional on the inside you Absolutely, are a person yeah. of, of enormous integrity and professionalism, and now you're human on the outside. Exactly. And that is enabling people to encounter you in a very different way. And I think, likewise, you know, as everyone, you go through this kind of what's professional, what's not, what's formal, what's informal. I'm very informal as a person. And so pretending I'm not would be would be wrong, really, because... <laughs> If I'm going to be coaching someone, they need to know I'm pretty informal. That's the way I am. So yeah. I think that's where, um, as I, of course, this does come with age, the confidence to be who you really are, mm -hmm. you know. And I am very clear about uh, what I'm good at. And I'm also very clear about the things that I'm not very good at. 
And I think, um, you know, as a woman in particular, that perfectionism, I think I've really had it when I was younger and, you know, right up into my 40s. This having to be good at everything business was really a handicap <laughs> mm-hmm. because actually trying to be good at everything isn't a very successful strategy. What you have to do is, uh, and I think my team around me, um, I think they benefit from and like the fact that I'm very clear about what I can do and what I can't do. And I, of course, make sure I'm surrounded by people who can do the things I can't do. And then I don't get in their way whenever they're good at their thing and, you know, and they let me, and it becomes self-fulfilling. It becomes, um, you know, a virtuous circle because they then like it when I go off and do things I do. I mean, everybody hates public speaking, clear. So I think, oh, my goodness, I'm fine for a while because uh, I think, you know, very few people actually ever volunteer to do it isn't it the <laughs> second biggest fear in life is death and then public speaking and because you know I've done a lot of it and because I think I was a bit of a mascot as the only woman when I was younger I think I got used to it mm. and so now of course I'm more used to it so I don't mind it at all um, and I like writing so I, I know that that's my my things talking and writing yeah. and coaching I think I'm a good coach too <laughs> <laughs> so your book's called coaching women changing the system not the person by Geraldine Gallagher, published by Open University Press. How do people contact you if they want to pick up the conversation, Geraldine? Well, um, my email address is geraldine at executive-coaching.co.uk. And our website, you know, which gives you all, we've got loads of fantastic resources around um diversity DEI um, issues we've got fantastic we've got an insights team that constantly comb through what's new and what's current and so we produce all this um, data um, to help people understand the issues better and that's on our website which is www.executive-coaching.co.uk and also on that we have our work family and you uh, website which is for parents and people thinking about getting pregnant that are working. And that's got loads of resources as well. Oh, fantastic. Lots of, yeah, and we, we realised that we wanted to make this uh, open access, but again, because it allows more women to stay. Um, and it's for dads as well, actually. Uh, it allows more parents to uh, stay in the workforce and not feel uh, overwhelmed by that double whammy that suddenly comes at you with that new baby and mm. the job, especially, mm. well, not especially, actually, single women, I feel, Single parents, I feel most uh, empathy for, but you know, dual career couples is a mm. tough gig out there at the moment, trying mm. to trying to make it all balance. And so, there's some great resources there, interviews with people, um, different little articles that coaches have written. I've written quite a few of them as well. Fantastic, and I'll put those in the show notes so Lovely. listeners, Thank you, you can have a look at that. Um, and so, yeah, Geraldine Gallagher, thank you for coming to the Coaching Inn. It was a pleasure, Claire. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, we'd love you to share the podcast with a friend or leave a comment on social media. And if you'd like to become a regular at The Coaching Inn, you can subscribe on Podbean and all major podcast channels. We look forward to welcoming you next time. You've been listening to The Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub. For more information, check out 3dcoaching.com.